Thanks for listening to The Gist. If you want to check out an ad-free version and bonus content, go to subscribe.mikepesca.com. It is the best way to directly support our endeavors. Hello, it's Saturday. It's the Saturday show. I didn't establish this was a show, but this is Mike, and every Saturday we bring you one from the vaults and one from the week. The one from the vaults aren't even from just vaults. They're from NPR's vaults. 2005, I did a story about the then blockbuster documentary March of the Penguins. And March of the Penguins with the Morgan Freeman narration, you know it, you'll hear a clip of it in the piece. It inspired some discourse about homosexuality in the animal kingdom. And I don't even mention this in the story, but I report on two penguins at the Central Park Zoo, Roy and Silo. And Roy and Silo were also the inspiration for a book called Tango Makes Three. Tango's the baby, the chick. Roy and Silo got together and uh, same-sex parented that chick for a season. That book, Tango Make Three, maybe you heard of it. It became pretty popular. It was a children's book has just been taken off the shelves by a school district in Florida because of Ron DeSantis' anti-penguin, don't-say-penguin stance. Also something about gay people. Now, in the self-critique of this report, it's three minutes, we can't get to everything. I don't even know time-wise if And Tango Makes Three was already out as a book. I know the New York Times have reported on the two gay, let's call them gay, they're not really gay, two same-sex male penguins. So I will not even mention in the story and Tango Makes Three. But I do mention in the story the fact that the gay marriage debate has been, and people involved in the gay marriage debate have been looking at these penguins, which is kind of stupid. But it's all kind of stupid. We're treating the penguins as people. We get lessons from them. And that is, it's not a critique of a little children's book. I suppose in some sectors, the idea that no same-sex couples could ever raise offspring of any kind, maybe that gets said, and this is a factual rebuttal to that. But basically, it's a huge amount of anthropomorphizing. Though, if we banned every book with anthropomorphizing, we ban, I don't know, half of all the children's books and every series on Nick Jr. A little bit of self-critique, by the way, at the end. I don't know if I nailed the landing perfectly. I also reference a Cineplex, which in 2005 was like what Netflix is today, except you all to go in the same place and eat bad popcorn. And then my segment from this week was when I talked about the 6-3 decisions of a conservative versus liberal ilk that were actually not coming down from the Supreme Court. Since I recorded that, two have been issued, one just Friday, and it was a little bit technical, Samia versus the United States. It was about disclosing um, a defendant's name or allowing a jury to draw an inference of a theretofore anonymous defendant's name. But the other one that was a 6-3 decision was... Uh, just as Hendricks versus Jones, and it's just one of those cases where the Supreme Court, the conservatives, just decided not to let a factually, actually innocent man free. I decry such situations.
from politics now to penguins. The documentary about the birds, March of the Penguins, is the surprise movie hit of the summer, perhaps because it's not just about the penguins. Okay, well, technically it is about the penguins, but when you see them fight for survival and to protect their young and even experience the cold, you realize penguins are kind of like us on our better days. Or maybe not. NPR's Mike Pesca now waddles up to the microphone to throw cold water on this whole penguins as people idea. Beautifully shot, expertly edited, actually re-edited to appeal to an American audience, March of the Penguins has a lot going for it, not the least of which is the casting of the narrator. Morgan Freeman brings humanity to the Penguins, and that is the problem. Like most love stories, it begins with an act of utter foolishness. Love stories? Reading this penguin behavior of survival and caring for offspring as love is just so human of us. And it seems to be what's grabbing audiences. It's what grabbed columnist Maggie Gallagher. What is so gripping about the movie is the immense sacrifices these penguins make for no good reason in the world to do this thing called, you know, making a baby, getting together, finding a mate, making a baby. And I think it taps a nerve because we, too, don't really understand the deep roots of our own drives. Gallagher, as the president of the Institute for Marriage and Public Policy, is one of the most widely quoted opponents of gay marriage. She testified before Congress. She's given hundreds of interviews. She's been paid by the Department of Health and Human Services to author pro-marriage materials. What Gallagher drew from the movie was, to quote her column this week, it is hard not to see the theological overtones in the movie. Beauty, goodness, love, and devotion are all part of nature built into the DNA of the universe. But here's the thing. At zoos throughout the world, they've noticed something about their penguins that might not fit into Maggie Gallagher's idea of theology. John Roden is the animal curator of New York Central Park Zoo. He says this about his penguins. We do have individuals that form bonds with members of the same sex. They're gay. They're gay penguins. Well, there I go being all human again. They're exactly what Rodin says. Two male penguins who've paired off, engage in sexual behavior, and in the case of Roy and Silo in Central Park, raise a chick. John Rodin says the zoo's two male fathers are up to the task. They turn out to be, when given the opportunity, they're excellent parents. So uh, that sort of thing, I would say that they're, you know, if we're talking about genetics, you know, there's a genetic component for that, I, I would definitely say. Maggie Gallagher says her argument doesn't have anything to do with penguin reality, but with the reasons why humans find penguins compelling. This is not because, objectively, penguins are an accurate symbol of the state of sexual and parenting relations in America, but because through art, these penguins became, they were made, a symbol that people responded to. Both Gallagher and Rodin acknowledge that our tendency to anthropomorphize animals is a natural phenomenon you might say, as natural as homosexual penguins. But animal behavior might not be the best guide for human morality. We admire the loving penguins, but let's remember, fluffy bunny rabbits sometimes eat their young. And my dinner with Flopsy probably won't be packing them into the local cineplex anytime soon. Mike Pesca, NPR News, New York.
And now the spiel. Tomorrow, Thursday, the Supreme Court will be issuing some of the more important decisions of the term. They were already handed down major decisions in cases involving Google, Twitter, Alabama voting laws, a Teamsters strike, the EPA, and Native American adoption rights. Now we hear, in lots of places, about the danger of the conservative majority 6-3 court. The Hill reports trust in Supreme Court plummeted amid rise of 6-3 conservative court. CNN senior Supreme Court analyst Joan Biskupic was on Jonathan Capehart's Washington Post podcast. Here's how he set up the conversation. And its 6-3 conservative supermajority has shown no qualms about overturning precedent and creating new legal theories to achieve long-held goals of the right. On this program, you'll just steal safe space from the hurly-burly of all the argle-bargle You heard that very argument right here. Michael Waldman, president of NYU's Brennan Center, was decrying the runaway power of the 6-3 court. Right now, we've got a 6-3 supermajority of very conservative justices who are most of the time in significant ways operating as part of a kind of a political machine. And I think that that is part, at least, of why the court's public support and credibility is plummeting. The left has raged against this machine, and it seems for good reason. Hello, Roe is overturned. That was a conservative supermajority 6-3 decision. Also, gutting gun laws, 6-3. So coming into this term, the stage was set, and precedent, which the Supreme Court loves, was established. But then something weird happened. This court has so far issued 39 opinions of the 57 cases it's heard. We're waiting on the rest. Want to guess how many of the 39 opinions have been 6-3, with the conservative majority making up the 6 and the liberals the 3? The answer is zero. Not a case. By the way, how trivia questions work, if the answer was 9, I wouldn't have asked it. There haven't even been any 5-4 cases where the three liberals got one conservative to come over to them, the losing side. It wasn't that the liberals have won every case, but it is the case that the losingest justices have been Alito and then Thomas and then Gorsuch in that order. The justice whose opinions became the law of the land most often, Sonia Sotomayor, thus far. So what is happening? Well, like I said, some of the big decisions haven't been issued yet. Here's Bloomberg previewing the upcoming cases, quote, legal observers expect the 6-3 conservative majority, the most right-leaning court in over 90 years, will vote against affirmative action, undermine Biden's student debt plan, and side with the website designer. This was in a uh, a gay wedding, don't want to design your wedding invitation case. But like I said, legal experts, Bloomberg quoting legal experts, legal experts have been wrong thus far. It hasn't been a particularly conservative court thus far this term. And legal experts, those experts, were surprised that Native American rights were upheld by a 7-2 majority, with Alito and Thomas comprising the two. They were surprised when Alabama's racial gerrymander was tossed out with Kavanaugh and Roberts joining the three liberals. At what point do we have to conclude that maybe these legal experts were making assumptions based on anxiety as much as evidence or proper power of prognostication? Well, yes, yes, we are very likely to see affirmative action in higher ed go down. But I ask us all to consider, is that one of the most important cases? Maybe. Is it more important than the case where 6-3 didn't rear its society-defining head? Allen v. Milligan, that was the Alabama election case. Sure, if affirmative action goes down, the college application process will change, but the fundamentals of democracy won't. Oh, and by the way, if affirmative action in college applications 
are disallowed, that is, in line with the opinions and the will of most Americans. I just bring that up because cutting against the will of most Americans was a critique of this 6-3 runaway super conservative court when it came to past decisions. Another of the big cases yet to be decided, that wedding invitation maker's right as an artist to turn down a job to create invitations for a gay wedding. Just to know where I stand, I argued with David French on this case. He thinks that it's a proper extension of First Amendment rights not to compel someone to make art for any reason they don't want to make art. I said a wedding card maker is more of a commodity and and vendors who peddle commodities should not be allowed to deny access based on sexual orientation. So I would, if I were on the court, be voting with Sotomayor, Jackson, and Kagan, but I don't know why the gay wedding invitation case is so much more important than the voting rights case or the Native American rights case, or even the cases that Twitter and Google won, holding them harmless for expressions by users of their platform. Granted, those cases were decided 9-0, but it doesn't make those cases unimportant just because they weren't close. And then we have to consider the independent state legislature theory case or the case of wackadoodle versus say what now? Sorry, I read that wrong. It was Moore v. Harper. It's an extremely consequential case. The Bloomberg article, which I quoted before, citing the looming 6-3 conservative majority, was titled, Supreme Court Leaves Politically Fraught Cases for Last. And the first line reads, Buckle up, the Supreme Court has saved some of this year's most politically explosive decisions for the end of the term. But Moore v. Harper would be the most consequential, except for the fact that it very much seems destined to fail. The six do not agree with independent state legislature theory. In fact, maybe even only two or three do. At oral arguments, a few of the conservative justices expressed skepticism. Here's Justice Kavanaugh. Your position seems to go further than Chief Justice Rehnquist's position in Bush v. Gore. And to give you a glimpse into Kavanaugh's mindset and why he values adhering to the 23-year-old Bush versus Gore ruling, well, here he was 23 years ago on the steps of the Supreme Court being interviewed by Wolf Blitzer on CNN. I think what we're seeing is more of a divide over how to interpret the Constitution than really political differences. I don't think the justices care that it's Bush versus Gore or if it were Gore versus Bush. What they care about is how to interpret the Constitution. What are the enduring values that are going to stand a generation from now? That history, plus the skepticism he expressed, plus take into account Amy Coney Barrett's skepticism. By the way, she also, like Kavanaugh, worked for the Bush side on Bush v. Gore. It all seems to strongly suggest the independent state legislature theory is a loser. And so then, if it does lose, if we get this ruling and it goes down, will it be interpreted as, well, there is yet another piece of evidence that cuts against the fear of a 6-3 conservative court marching in lockstep, taking away our rights, issuing crazy theories, that how it's going to be interpreted? I doubt it. All of these decisions that haven't been of that 6-3 makeup seem to do nothing to calm down the most worried amongst us, who also in many cases seem to be the most learned. The New Yorker quoted Mark Lemley, Stanford Law professor, as saying of the current term, if the court decides that we don't have a right to elect the winners of elections, as it seems poised to do, it may dismantle the political apparatus of our country for good. This echoes the dominant explanation among those who are most worried. They look at every piece of data that doesn't confirm their theory, and they say, etium sed tamen, or to translate from the Latin, yeah, but still. 
No decisions have been 6-3 with the liberals getting crushed. Yeah, but still. Okay, of the 39 decisions thus far ruled on, 25 have been 9-0. Yeah, but still. Okay, Alito and Thomas are the biggest losers. Sotomayor, the most frequent winner. Yeah, but still. Please. I really hope we haven't totally lost our ability to update our priors in the face of new evidence. And if you promise to do that, if you're one of those who were concerned that I was among that group, but if you've been ignoring all the latest evidence, I suggest you take it into account. Just think anew about what it means. And I swear I will do the same. I will not be surprised if we, in fact, start seeing a bunch of 6-3 rulings in the future on very consequential matters. Yeah, it hasn't been that way so far, but we still have a few more to go. And that's it for today's show, Saturday's show. The Gist is produced by Corey Wara and Joel Patterson is the senior producer. We will talk to you on Monday.